Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Michael S. Glick has enjoyed a 35-year career as an assistant director, producer, and unit production manager. In this conversation conducted for our Movie Geek Yearbook series, he reminisces about working with Jack Nicholson and Cher on The Witches of Eastwick, John Wayne on McHugh, Al Pacino on The Godfather Part Two, and many more experiences. What inspired and, and led to your entry into the movie business? When I got out of the Army, uh, you know, I was looking for, for work. And, uh, you know, uh, I was always kind of fascinated by the motion picture industry. And a friend of mine uh, told me there was a opening at the MGM accounting department for accounts receivable clerk. So I said, well, you know, I was a finance and accounting major in college. I said, well, I'll apply for it. I applied for it. I got the job, and then I found out I, accounting wasn't for me. And uh, at that time, uh, they posted jobs on the bulletin board at MGM. So there was a job that they posted for a trainee estimator. So I applied for that. And I got that job, and I became a, and I started the estimating department. And then you know they was right there in the production office. And then when things got busy, they would borrow you to go out, you know, as a, a location manager, uh, as a, uh, a, uh, I guess, you know, and then I'm, I did a little work as location auditing and stuff. So gradually doing all that, uh, I became interested. And I said, this is, this is kind of fun. I enjoy it. Eventually, uh, I, I said, well, you know, so I, I was in the production office. I did a multitude of things. I mean, it was unlimited hours, uh, they would send you out on second units. You would uh, you go uh, do television shows. You do features. You know it, it was without portfolio. I wasn't a member of a union. I was a member. I was just a PA in the production office. And then finally, uh, you know, I said, "Well, I got to progress from here." And at that time, MGM would were uh, allowed. That was before the trainee program, and you were allowed to uh, sponsor two people a year. Uh, into the director's guild was in, in, the, in the assistant director's category. So I was promised, and then the son of a uh, executive would be there and say, sorry, Mike, he kind of takes precedence. Anyway, uh, I was on the books, and finally there was a lot of people that were on the books, and they said, well, we got to, you know, how are we going to do this? So we're going to say, well, I guess we'll start a training program. So... Uh, I applied and I took the test to see if I get in the training program and I passed the test and I got in the training program, but to make a long story short, I was only a trainee for about six months. And one day the head of production, uh, calls me into his office. He says, Mike, he says, you're not a trainee anymore. And I said, Oh my God. You know, I said, I got a young family. I, <laughs> I was worried about losing a job. He says, no, no. He says, it's the needs of the industry. You're now a second assistant director. Go down to stage 12. And that was it. You know? Wow. But I did all <laughs> that work as a trainee uh, without, you know, with, without actually getting paid or whatever. And it was, so we exposed to many things. I was exposed to, uh, I was an assistant for a while. Um, a man by the name of Buddy Gillespie was head of special effects. And I worked with him. And I did, we did vintages out of lot three. Uh, you know, and we did lace processing. So it was really a, a great experience. And they would send you out on second units all over the place. I remember having to uh, go to Lake Tahoe, the second unit. And then you know, I had a, they sent me one time, I think, uh, to uh, Florida. So, you know, you had the trainee, but uh, it was <laughs> it was individual survival. You were sent into it and you had to survive. It must have felt like such an exciting world to be thrown into. It was. It really was. And you never knew from one moment to the next where you'd be and what you'd be doing. I, I remember, God, uh, I get a call in the middle of Saturday night, you know, and they would say, okay, Mike, if you meet the plane at 6 o'clock in the morning at LA International, uh, and, uh, if, for example, pick up the film that has to go to the lab, so you'd have to do that. And then you call some other time, we want you to go down to wherever and uh you know work with uh with the director you know do run around do work for him so it was kind of like 
you were at their mercy and, and you would say, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, this is all I know. I'm not going to say no to any of this stuff. So it was, and they took advantage of you because, you know, uh, small pay, unlimited hours and a lot of work, but it was all a learning experience. Yeah. That, that, uh, those experiences are priceless. I'm sure. It really um, is. I mean, one day, I mean, I, I, I remember, uh, where they did a picture called Run Silent, Run Deep, and Torpedo Run, and I'd be on stage 20, I think 26 or 27, where they had underwater work. You'd be there one day, the next day, they'd have you going to Vasquez Rocks. You know, and it was, <laughs> wow. And then you would go to, I remember going to, they needed some help uh, on a show that I think it was called uh, The um, Twilight Zone. It says, okay, Mike. He says, pack your bags, you're going to to uh, uh, the Alabamas and uh, and Lone Pine. So you, you, you go there and you do that and you go someplace else. So it was like unlimited. They said, we, and they'd say to you, okay, uh, we need a second unit. We need some help at such and such place. Uh, you know, draw some money, uh, pick up the forms, then go. So, Yeah, it's apparent looking at your resume that you are a jack of all trades. You have several titles throughout your your career of different kinds of positions that you've, I feel like you've mastered in the industry. And I wanna ask you about a few of these film sets that you've been involved in. Uh, sure. At the beginning of your career, you were uh, primarily a, an assistant director uh, on a number of great, great films. And the first right. of which I, I wanna ask about is John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which is one of the great classic films, and this is near the yeah. beginning of your career, and yeah. you're you're starting it with with the credit on one of the great films. Yeah, it was it was it was a great experience. Chico Day was the first, and I was the second. At that time, it wasn't like it is now, where you have a a second assistant in charge of crowd control, and and one would do the paperwork, and one you had to do everything. You had and you, and it was really very. You had to stand right behind the first assistant. You had to make sure that all of you know the actors on the set on time. You had to make sure that the calls were set. You had to do the production reports. You had to do the call sheets. And we used to have to have daily time cards for the screen uh, for the actors. And you had to make those out every day. And never forget, I still have nightmares about it. They had little yellow time cards, and you had to turn them in, and you had to get them to sign these time cards. I mean, in the, him being the uh, the actors that the, that they said yes, we worked these hours and improved it. So mm. it was like, and we had not such a thing as, as turnaround. We were there. I mean, time after time, I just slept in the production office. Wow. So it was. Uh, so you really uh, and. If you needed some help, you know, if you had big crowds, uh, I remember seconds, uh, John Frankenheimer, we were shooting on Houston Street, and even in New York, in the middle of the summer, and, you know, you had to control traffic, and the police department, the fire department, uh, and you had to make sure everybody got their calls, and then transportation, you had to, you know, transportation plots, so you had to pick up this person at such and such time, and uh, in, in equipment, where you have to go, and so it was, it was a full-time job, and it was really uh, exhausting. Well, you've been in the business for, you know, 40, 40 or so years, and, uh, you know, you are used to dealing with a variety of actors and stars, and I'm wondering, do you see a differentiation between that generation, the the, the rock Cutson generation and John Wayne generation and, and this one? I think uh, truly actors at that time they knew their craft and they they were more dedicated and this is that this, this is their life I mean, a lot of times the more modern actors you know they have a lot of the things that they have to do they have you know, publicity and all these other things that kind of uh, I wouldn't say interrupt there, but it, it, that they had so many other things that they had to do that you you had to work around their schedules. Well, tomorrow I have to have you know a special meeting with the publicity day after and so on, and you had to deal with all those things. You had to be able to make 
changes and stuff. He had to explain it to the directors uh, that, you know, this is what's happening in a diplomatic way. And yeah. I, I, you know, you have to say to them sometimes, would you mind if we changed our, you know, schedule a bit, and which would allow you more time to prepare because we might have to utilize the services of another actor because this particular person is not going to be available. And it was, uh, it was a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, and there was there was such a degree of mystery and mystique about those those classic film stars because you didn't see them plastered on everything every single day. They they weren't an open book. But you know that was uh, John Frankenheimer was he was a difficult director, and I also did extraordinary semen with him in Quetzalcoatlus, Mexico. But, you know, they, you'd go there and, uh, you know, the director wanted this and you better be prepared. So, yeah. and, and the actors, Rock Hudson was terrific. Solomon Jans was terrific. Uh, they were all really professional actors. Have you ever been surprised being so intimately involved in the process of making so many movies? Have you ever been surprised that a movie turned out much better than you expected it to? Uh, you know, let me think for a moment. You know something, to be honest with you, when you, when you do a movie and you see the scenes and how it portrays in, in the story, you kind of know and say, yeah, no, this, this, this is going to be a good movie. Or mm-hmm. think, well, I don't know if this is going to work out too well. So you kind of know, you kind of know. But I was surprised at a couple of shows. You know, I I didn't think that, well, Witches of of Eastwick uh, was better than I thought it would be. Not that it was a big hit. uh, But, you know, you've got to get it. You've got to sense whether this is going to be a success by the way you like the performances and the people and how how it it was all coming together. Uh, I know on Fortune Cookie, uh, which was a fun movie to do with Billy Wilder, he he was terrific, and uh, you know, and Jack Lemmon was great, and Walter Matthau, and you knew, you know, it just kind of had an air. We we're really creating something very, very special. You know, I, I enjoyed it. The performances were terrific. The people were nice, and it was. Um, yeah. I, you, well, got, it is, you had a feeling, and then there's other projects. I thought, oh my god, I don't know. You know, I hope they make their money back. <laughs> well, uh, and I would think that in in your position, too, you you have to be able to delicately balance a lot of egos. Oh, absolutely. And the main thing, you know, uh, it, it's a constant battle because. The production office is down your neck. And it was like, you know, big studio system. This is, And you had to answer to a lot of people there. And plus the fact that you had to make sure that the director is satisfied and uh, and everything runs smoothly. So it, it, it was very difficult at times. And there's always people taking sides. I remember a couple of movies when I was a production manager, uh, the stars hated the the producers and wouldn't talk to them. <laughs> they would just talk to me. Uh, I was a production manager and the assistant director uh, with with Stanley Kramer on the Domino Principle, and he. I never. I'm. We're on a location survey, and we're in Chicago, and I get up early in the morning and make sure that that what we're going to see on location that day correlates to certain scenes in the picture. So the director knows this is why we're going to this location. I remember one, I was, I was, I so I used to get up early in the morning and, and sit down and have some coffee and some breakfast and plan the schedule of the day. And one time, uh, Stanley Kramer is, is down and says, Mike, may I, may I sit with you? I said, God, it'd be an honor, Stanley, please sit down. And he starts mumbling. I've, I've never fired anybody in my life. I, I, I said, Stanley, I said, what's the matter? He said, I'm never going to talk to the producers again. You have to talk to them. I only talk to you. <laughs> so that was a tough situation. And the producers say, what did they say? I remember casting calls. What did he say? What did he like? What did he didn't, didn't like? He says, and, and they used to say, you tell him. I said, okay, I will. <laughs> But it, it was a very awkward position. 
Yeah. And you had mentioned Witches of Eastwick. And I, my understanding is, is that was a kind of an equally contentious set. Oh, that was. That was really. Those three girls, it was just maddening. <laughs> I remember, and I don't know if it, we were doing, remember this one sequence where uh, the three actors are levitating over a pool? Yes. And we did that on, on the Warner Ranch, um, and they, they built, the, they had the swimming pool, and they built this big tent over the swimming pool. And at that time, we had like five giant cranes in with these uh, monofilament lines that would lift the ladies up, and then there had to be holes on top of the tent in order to accommodate the lifting of the actresses. And, you know, it took you know, a long time to... to to light it, and you had to light it in such a way that you wouldn't see the lines and you wouldn't see the rigs. Uh, so we, we were ready to do the final sequence on a Friday. And Sheer comes up to me and she says, uh, Mike, I want to let you know I'm, I have an, an appointment tonight at, at uh, I think it was like 8 o'clock, and I'm leaving. I said, Sheer, you're going to leave when the assistant director says wrap. I said, this is the last night here. we got a lot of busy things to do. And she says, Mike, you didn't hear me. Because she would, they, the, the producers ran. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have conversations. <laughs> so I said, look, at, uh, in due respect, let me repeat again. I said, when we wrap Saturday morning, that's when it's over. And she says, well, I'm leaving. I said, fine, you leave. Uh, you're in you're, uh, you're violation of your contract. And I'm going to call your agent and let her know and go on record. And, and for every dollar that we lose, we're going to sue you for that. Because you're, you're not relieved. This is your, you know, this is your contract. And you're in contempt of, of your contract. And, um, you know, so he, she says to me, well, you're a bastard. <laughs> I said, yeah, <laughs> and you're a bastard too. So she stayed. But, you know, they had problems like that. Were they friends? Yeah, but had but Jack, uh, Jack, he was he was he was a, he was a real kick. Uh, he was an insomniac. So when we were shooting in Boston, he would he would be out all night, and then he would uh, sleep. But you couldn't give him a call before eleven o'clock in the morning. And so what I had to do is I hired a uh, college student who, who drove the special car for Jack. And I he used to call me all night. He says, we're here at night and we're going to go someplace up. up, up. I, I said, let me know when he gets to bed. So I, so I knew exactly <laughs> when we would call him the next day. And when he called him the next day, uh, George Miller could never make up his mind. And I, I said, say, George, look at, uh, I said, uh, he'll be here, you know, in a half an hour. So, so you got to be ready to shoot. Half an hour comes and they're not ready to shoot. He would turn around and walk off the set. <laughs> I said, George, we are waiting for him when he comes, utilize him. And he, he's a brilliant man. I mean, he was, he was ter- a terrific actor. But he, he, he had certain set things to do. And the three girls loved him. I mean, he was kind of the leader of the group. Yeah. And yet, for all the problems, the movie turned out to be delightful. Yeah. The movie itself, yeah. It was, and then shooting in Boston. Oh my God, <laughs> the unions are terrible, you know, and and the teamsters are even worse. <laughs> God, we we had a, a, a teamster captain by the name of Billy Bratton, and uh, we used to go on we go on a location survey, and uh, he would always take the longest way back from the location to Boston because. If you want, if, with their contracts, if, if you work any part of an hour, you get full hours pay. So I remember I said, after a while, I'd take a map. I said, Billy, I said, this is the way you're going to go. I said, you go to Gloucester on this highway, and you come back this way, and you turn us off. She's, and he didn't like that. We are grumbling. So finally, uh, and I said, on top of that, I said, Billy Bratton, I said, I want your time cards and all your driver's time cards on uh, on my desk every night because they used to cheat with the hours and they would have many more hours than they actually worked and you'd have to sit there and, and, and have a confrontation and they, they were really crooks. 
So he mm. says, look, he says, Mike, he says, you'll get those, those uh, time cards when I'm good and ready to give them to you. And I said, okay, Billy, I said, I'm going to let you know. He, I said, if and when you get paid, look who signs your check on the bottom right-hand corner. If I don't get your time cards, you're not going to get paid. He said, then we'll go on strike. And we were staying at a place called the Fenway Cambridge. And we were, this is the last few nights that we're going to, we had to go into Boston proper. And he says, we're going to leave. I said, fine. Listen, Billy, look out the window. There's a circular driveway to Fenway Cambridge. And there's 50 cabs lined up. I said, you can get the hell out of here. I'm going to take, I'll, I'll, I'll rent every one of those cabs and take us to the location and back. And I said, no, that's okay. <laughs> so he said to me, he says, well, you know, you better not go out tonight. You know, threaten right Billy. I said, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. So, you know, you, gotta, they were really, you had to really, and I, I felt bad because we had a teamster from um, the West Coast, and he, they just beat the hell out of him. And oh, wow. so I used to just, you know, what are you going to do? You, either, either he ran the company or I did, so. That was, mm. There's a hundred one of those. I mean, God, with <laughs> Thailand with with the Australian crew, and they, that was another. Big, I did off limits. I was in Thailand for about six months. I did a lot of international because once once you uh, do a location show, they say, "Oh, well, he knows about that location." They keep sending you back there. I I worked on four films in uh, Mexico, all over. Hmm. Did you have a Did you have a favorite location to work in, or a city, or? I, I tell you something. I I loved working in New York, only because I've, the crews are tough. But you know, when it's a wrap, it's a wrap. You don't work out long hours in New York because of the rules and regulations. But you know, they would say, "Okay, we're going to go. We're down on on uh, Houston and and West Side Highway or whatever." Uh, and they would they'd report there, and you know you didn't have a cater for lunch. You gave them you gave them money, and they break. And it changed since then, but you just give them money for lunch, and say okay, they'll be back in an hour, and they were. Wow, so was, I've, I've heard stories about British crews that they they have to take tea breaks at certain times. Oh and yeah, at the end of the day, they're definitely out of there. Yeah, I did two pictures in in, in England, uh, Emerald Force, which we shot in Brazil, and uh, Champions, which we shot all over England. And they would have the bangers at 10 o'clock, you know, and <laughs> if you wanted to go overtime, you had to meet with the shop stewards, and they'll say either yes or no. And they brought everything. When we worked in, in, uh, in Brazil... They brought their own cater and they bring uh, their own food and stuff. I said it was it's, it was really kind of crazy. But they were good. John Borman, uh, he was a real animal. He ran into every place. And he, he, they worked hard, but yeah. uh, you know they had their bangers. They had their mid afternoon tea, and you know when they break for lunch, sometimes they have a quick shot or two. But <laughs> and then it was you know uh, their whole. Uh, uh, their whole the, the titles of different people vary so much from us. You know, uh, they would say, uh, God, what was it? Uh, hot side grip, and they would say, you know, a sparks, and they would say, uh, focus puller, and, you know, the continuity clerk. And so there's a lot of different things you had to learn their vernacular. Mm. You know, the first year that our series will open on the year 1970 and then we'll, we'll also look at the sixties and later on in the seventies, but uh, 1970 is the first year we're, we're, we're going to do an episode on. And I don't know if you have any memories of your work as an assistant director on the movie, tick, tick, tick. Oh God. Yes. In, in Calusa, California. Absolutely. I remember that with Jim Brown. Yes. He was a tough guy, and you know the, the producers. You know they were kind of afraid. And also, I, 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 we lived in. He stayed in Yuba City, and he had his. Uh, he had a uh, an apartment, or a, you know, I guess a hotel, a, a motel room, right next to mine. And then for the first about a week or so, you know, I we I would give him his call and everything, and he would really be pretty surly. 
So finally one day I said, you know, and I said, how am I going to get to this guy? And, uh, and I looked up to him and he's a giant of a guy and I'm looking up to him and I said, you know, I said, Jim, and I look right in the eye and I said, if you ever hit me and I find out about it, I'm going to be very unhappy. <laughs> and he laughed. I said, okay, let's break the ice. And I said, this is your car. This is your driver. Uh, I'll give you your call. You know, your other time is on your own. He was terrific. You know, once you broke the ice. Yeah. And I'll never forget that. It's like, you ever hit me and I find out about it, I'm going to be very unhappy. <laughs> I like and that movie. I like that movie, actually. I just I just uh, watched that movie last week, and, and I liked it. It was very interesting. It, it, it was... Uh, God, we, that was what they had video with. That's the first time they had uh, a playback on a, on a video. So they used to we'd shoot and have a video camera right alongside the BNC camera. The only problem is that the BNC, it wasn't through the lens, so there was a little distortion as to uh, the picture that you saw on the video. It wasn't the same, actually, that you saw uh, when you watched uh, the actual dailies. So it was, it was a, you'd say, well, that was good. He says, no, it wasn't. They have to remind them. I said, it's, it's not through the lens of the camera. It's on the side of the camera. So there is a certain difference in, in uh, the position. So, it, but it, every time they, they have a shot, they had this two and a half ton truck uh, that everybody'd run in there and they'd be dark and you'd watch you know, you watch the replay, and you go back out again. So it, it was unique. It was the start of that video playback. Yeah. Tell me about your experiences with uh, John Wayne. He was a terrific guy. He was, a, he, he was wonderful. He always used to say, um, he always used to say, I always wanted always want to be the, the earliest person on location. And as everybody came in, he used to say, well, what do you, you're late again. What do you think? It's banker's hours. So I used to pay his driver. He used to go out in his motor home. I used to say, okay, what time are you picking up John Wayne today? And I would get there earlier than John. I said, John, how are you? You know, I said, it looks like you're almost on time. And he would get so I how did you know it's coming? But he was great that way. And that's another person. He hated the, the producers. He hated them. He just was. So again, he he, he confided in me. I, I I was the production manager on that, uh, and he was he was good. No, he was the the only problem John Wayne had was the fact that he loved the crew. He'd never get off the set. We'd have to you know we'd have to rehearse. And John Sturgis was great. I mean, he was wonderful. I'll never forget. Uh, we had this one sequence in downtown Seattle, where we used the actual Seattle police station. And uh, we had a shot of John Wagon driving down the street real fast and pulling into uh, the police station. And I, and I used to always get there early enough in the morning to make sure everything is okay. I get there one particular morning, and a fire hydrant broke. And that particular street was flooded. So mm. I said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? So here John Sturgis comes, and I said, John, I'm sorry, this is, you know, this is a situation. He said, oh, no problem. So we're going to go, we're going to left to right, we'll go right to left, and we'll use this street. And <laughs> one, two, three, anyway, it was like it was nothing. You just, that was okay. Oh, that's great. Because they were professionals. They knew how to compromise. But John Wayne, he was great. He was good to be shot. This little city outside of, uh, I don't know, the Olympic Peninsula. And, uh, it was a shot that both of them were inside this, this little bungalow. And people, I wish it Hoquiam, I think it was called Hoquiam. Uh, Hoquiam or Aberdeen. And there was about, God, you know, 3,000 people outside the house, you know, because they all wanted to see John Wayne. And uh, I remember that we had police to block them off, and John Wayne comes out. And they made a lot of noise and stuff. Like, John Wayne, John Wayne. And John said, look at Guy. He made a speech. He says, thank you for your loyalty and coming in to see me and everything. He says, and I'll sign some of your, uh, your I'll sign some, some, some whatever, whatever you wanted. However, he says, when we go inside and we are filming, please, you have, it has to be quiet. And he 
<laughs> they were terrific. And he'd go into, into the crowd and he'd sign autographs and stuff. He was very good. Yeah, he but seemed he like a very uh, very genuine person, uh, yeah. authentic, authentically himself. Right, he was. Do you know that he had uh, a, a contract with Oldsmobile that he would appear, you know, in an Oldsmobile car all the time. He was only Oldsmobile cars. And he used to like to sit uh, in the, uh, the passenger side of the front seat. So uh, I remember that... Uh, the Oldsmobile company, they had to lift the roof up about six inches of the car because when he sat down, his, his torso was so big, his head had hit the ceiling. So it, so he had a special car, and he still always wears his cowboy hat. But that's why also with the, with the ship, we had a Grand Banks only because of the height of John, and, and usually a, a, another type of yacht, he'd be... He'd have to he'd hit his head, or he'd have to, you know, kind of uh, be doubled up all the time because he's so tall. Yeah, it, yeah. But he was good. He was a nice, nice guy. You know, it's your job to, in these positions that we're talking about, these various films, to keep things, keep things running, keep things on the move and organized. Did anyone ever intimidate you? I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you talking about being a, working across from John Wayne. And I can't imagine how long it would take me to not be intimidated by him. But well, you know any... something, at first, uh, I, you know, he just had his, his, his good old boys club, you know, and uh, he treated everybody like their buddies. I mean, he liked people. He had his own makeup. He had his own hairdresser. He had his own masseuse. Because, you know, at that time, he wasn't very well, and he used to get cramps in the middle of the night all the time. So I have to have his masseuse right next to him. And he had his own you know, had his own stunt man, and uh, but he at first, you know, you, you know, once you start say John and so on, uh, he he was fine. He was yeah. Fine. And you worked on talk about an epic, uh, Godfather Part Two. Yes. Which is one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, what experiences do you recall on that? Oh God, I tell you, there was numerous. You know, I started working on that. Uh, in July 1973, and I came back in June of 74. It was really quite an wow. experience. The the first time we were we were we were at Fjord Lock Estate in South Lake Tahoe, and we had I, I guess, and that's where they had the Mr. Wonderful and, and, and the Cotillion and so on. And remember, all the cast they were we all stayed at Cal Neva Lodge, which is very nice. But they all wanted their own special room and this and that, and they were all kind of grumbling. So one, I think one Friday or Saturday after work, I said, okay, uh, and I invited them all into this banquet room, and we had some drinks and, and, and hors d'oeuvres and stuff. And I sat them all down, and I said, look, it, what can I do to make you happy? And I said, let me know what do you need. So one person said, well, I need uh, special water. I said, you got special water. Another person says, well, I, I don't like that. I don't like this wardrobe. I said, well, change your wardrobe. You know, you, and then after a while, they couldn't complain because I said yes to everything. And it wasn't hard, but, you know, and uh, <laughs> Al Pacino, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, we're shooting, you know, uh, the Cuban sequence in uh, Santa Domingo, the Dominican Republic. And I moved, before that, we when we started shooting, we shot the Fjord Lock Estate, we shot in Reno, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and then we had a Christmas break. When the Christmas break, some of the, most of the key people went to New York to rehearse. So uh, we were in New York and rehearsed the, 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 the Cuban sequence and you know, some of the stuff that we did in, in uh, Avenue uh, 6th Street between Avenue A and Avenue B, and we had big table and they had red wine and so on. And I remember uh, Al Pacino says to me, he says, Mike, he said, um, uh, I'm a little concerned about my safety. Uh, I don't want anybody to know that I'm coming. I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I went to Santa Domingo. I'm at the airport and I arranged with the, the police and everybody to go through this little separate room after he got, you know, uh, at that time, Pan Am flew 747s down to the Dominican Republic. So I remember I was there on the tarmac, 
uh, when the Pan Am plane landed, and you know they had the movable stairs up to the first section, which is up by the pilot and so on. So that's where the first uh, the premier people got off in that section, and about 20 people. The last person to get off the plane is Al Pacino. So he comes down and uh, he has this old floppy hat on, some holes in jeans and a t-shirt and some tennis shoes. And he comes down. I said, hi, Hal, how are you? And and I said, you know, follow me. I'll take you, you know, uh, the special exit so we don't have to be bothered with customs and all these other things. And I said, while we're doing that, uh, can you give me your luggage tags for your clothing? He says, what luggage tags? I said, we're going to be down here for about six to eight weeks. I said, did you did you pack anything? He says, no, I didn't pack anything. <laughs> so I had to get the wardrobe person to give him a whole set of wardrobe and you know, some toothbrushes to hair. <laughs> we had to completely take care of him. Wow. Wow. Did and, you uh, – I, I heard stories about the, the last scene of Godfather 2 where they were expecting Brando and he didn't show or, or – or, are you aware of how that worked? He never was in it. it was, to my knowledge, he was never in it. They were always waiting for him. Yeah. No, he he did not have a contract with, uh, as I remember, Godfather Part II did not have a contract with them. And the, and they did something very unique. Uh, I think Coppola, much like I hear about Spielberg, I think he's great at finding creative solutions. Oh, he's he's a genius. He is just terrific. Yeah. I, you know, when when we had we were choreographing, uh, we had like nine or ten cam- cameras to the cotillion at, at South Lake Tahoe at the Fiorga Lock Estate, and he took all the operators and uh, the camera crew and some of the other key people and explained to him what he wanted covered to each person. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. This is where it is. So I mean, it, it was like a waltz the way he choreographed everything. Mm. Mm. And he and he was he never liked to hear bad news. So he, he, every time he sees me, he says, "Mike, I don't want to hear." It. I said, "I'm not going to tell you anything." But yeah. <laughs> uh, you also worked on two on I think two Rocky films, Rocky Two and Rocky Five. Yeah, and I did I did uh, Paradise Alley, I did Lock Up, and I did uh, I, I did four or five pictures with him. So Stallone likes you. Yeah, at that time he did. He did. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you know, so I, I, um, I let's see, I did, I did Paradise Alley, uh, then I did Rocky Two, I did Lock Up, then I did uh, Rocky Five. I did four pictures of him, but I never forget. Do you remember uh, on Rocky Two, he used to have, he had a couple of hangers on, and uh, we were staying at Holiday Inn at Fourth and Arch Street in Philadelphia. And in the winter time, and you know the the the, uh, the weather was very unpredictable, and but he had uh, he had an assistant. He used to thought he was very smart, and he used to try to second guess me all the time because I say we're going to go here today. We're going to go. And I said, what if you did this? His name was Arthur Chagobian, 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 whatever. That's a long time ago. Anyway, we get ready to shoot this sequence where. Uh, Sly put proposes to Talia Shire, and we we have this uh, a tourist boat that was touring the Delaware River and the beautiful shots at daytime and so on. So we and, and the weather there at that time was very unpredictable. So we get up uh, on a Monday morning. The weather was fairly nice on Saturday and Sunday. We get there Monday morning and it's snowing, mm. and we're at Fourth and Arch Street. And uh, at six o'clock in the morning, uh, we, we assemble down in the, the hallway, and, and Stallone says to me, "So, Mike, what are we going to do?" And I and I look. Here's a cameraman, everybody else. I said, "Well, Arthur, I said you kind of know everything. What what do you think we should do?" You know, and the guy gets embarrassed. So I said, "I tell you what, we're going to do, Sly." I said, "The only street that's plowed is this main street," and it's a true story. He says, and it ends at the zoo. We're going to go to the zoo, and you're going to propose to her in the zoo. Huh. I said, give me a half an hour head start, 
So I go down the main street to the zoo and I get the cure. And I said, this is what we got to do. And he said, fine, you can do it here. The whole, the whole company gets there and we go in and that's where he proposed to tell you Shire right by the lion den. That's how that came about. And it's a great scene. Yeah. But that was the only place that was available that day to get to. <laughs> wow. I have to ask you uh, about uh, your, your, you also worked with Richard Pryor on a film, Bustin' Loose. Yeah. Was that I, a... I did two pictures of him. Uh, Which Way is Up, Bustin' Loose. Yeah. Was that a harmonious relationship? Absolutely. It was, you know, something I remember when we were doing, um, let's see, Which Way was Up. Uh, Richard wasn't on a Friday. We wanted to get this sunset shot, and we were waiting, kind of waiting around a little bit uh, to get this beautiful shot. But Richard Pryor wasn't feeling well, and I said, "What's the matter, Richard?" He says, "Well, I'm getting, you know, I got kind of a chest pain. I'm just not feeling well." So I said, "Okay," I said, "That's a wrap." And Richard said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Listen, the sun sets every day. If you're not feeling well today, we'll do it another time. That's all right. Don't worry about it." Mm. And at that point, from that point on, I could do no wrong. So that's when he, after we finished uh, Which Way Is Up, then he says, I want you to produce Busting Loose for me. So it, it, he was fine. He was fine. Yeah. He used to call me uh, a boss man. I was there, you know, doing my job. I'm a working stiff. So yeah. He used to say, Masa, what are we doing today? And I said, okay, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. And we had a young black director who was terrific. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, his name for, escapes me now. On Bustin' Loose? Yeah. His name was uh, uh, Oz Scott. Oz Scott, yeah. That was, I think, his first film. Anyway, he was totally intimidated by, uh, by Richard Pryor and so on. So I used to say to him, I said, look, all you need to do is I'll do all the driving shots, the approach to location and leading locations getting inside, and then you do the dialogue with Talia Shire, her and him only. So I used to do the second units and do all the traveling shots. So it kind of worked that out. He just did the shots with the principals. You were involved in one of my favorite movies from the 90s. It's It's kind of a top three movie for me, and that's The Doctor. Yeah. Oh, I adore that movie. Yeah, it was... That was an interesting film. She she was very good. She was very good. Randa Haynes. Prim, prim, yeah, she was very good. And Randa Haynes was good. I mean, it was it, it was you know we shot in San Francisco. We shot Pyramid Lake outside of Reno, Nevada, and we built the whole we built the whole uh, interior of the hospital and the warehouse in Santa Clarita. Just you know we we had to do that for a price and. Uh, to, to shoot it at Disney and rent stages at Disney, it was impossible. It was just too expensive. So I said, okay. I went to this open warehouse in Santa Clarita. I said, this is this is where, well, let's build a set there. So uh, we, we designed everything. We built that set. And we shot wow. most of that interior right on that stage. It was, and then we, I remember we were shooting. We had this one sequence where the, the pigeons fly off. Uh, and we were set to do that in San Francisco. Well, to get to the top of the building and try and get these pigeons, pigeon, and it was a, a very windy day, it would never work. So I said, listen, let's hold this off, get back to Los Angeles. So we kind of did that as a second unit shot after the finish of principal photography. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with locations because I, as I was watching uh, Tick, 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 for example, I mean, you, you just said that you shot that in California, and yeah. it's it's meant to appear to be a, a sweaty southern town. Right. Coleta, California, uh, that's the rice-growing center of the United States. It looks more like a southern town than <laughs> most southern towns. had that big square, and we actually shot at the sheriff's station. Oh, wow. We shot down by the levees. It looked very much like the south. And I heard that the – I don't know if you recall this, but I heard that the exterior – of the courthouse that was used was the same one from To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, I don't know about that. It could have been. It could have been. I, I wasn't familiar with that, to be honest with you. Yeah. So it what did you... Been. I thought that To Kill a, a Mockingbird 
that they did that at the courthouse in Stockton, California, but I could be wrong. It could be. I, I know. I just read that it was the exterior. Maybe they shot the interior in, a, in Stockton. I'm not sure. But um, uh, so, what are you do? What are you doing now? What 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 occupies your passion? Well, you know, something. What I, I'm doing now is uh, I taught at the American Film Institute for about six, seven years. But you know, it's. I personally think that, uh, and that's my opinion. I think it's a waste of time. Uh, because the only way to, to really learn and do things is to do it and to have and book knowledge and stuff like that. You know, you, you got to have the practicality of actually experience it. But I taught physical production, you know, how to deal with unions, how to deal with, with agents, how to work with, with cast, how to make schedules and do budgets and stuff like that. Uh, and, 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 but they didn't, most of the kids didn't want to do that. They wanted to be creative producers. They, mm. That's all they cared about. And uh, so after about six, seven years, I said, you know something? They don't really want to know what I'm, what I'm teaching. And so I said, so I retired. But since then, I have been, I'm doing volunteer work. In fact, I just didn't, came back from the motion picture home. I volunteer there. Like when I'm in town, like you know, Tuesday through Friday, but on Mondays, I volunteer at the Providence Tarzana Emergency Room. So it keeps me pretty busy. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the motion picture home, because I, I don't think uh, people are, are aware enough about that, especially movie fans that, that might be inspired to support that cause. It's a, it's a fabulous place. Uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks Sr. You know, bought this property many, many years ago. And uh, it's involved, and then they take care of. They say we take care of our own. Uh, they have uh, they have facilities there. They have what they call the Stark Villa, which are lovely, lovely condominiums, a three-story building, and they feed everybody there. And, and it's really quite elegant. Then they have what they call a country house, which is uh, a, a few steps down from that. When when you need more medical attention, then it's the country house. Then they have the lodge, and then they have uh, critical care. They also have an area for, uh, it's called Harry's Haven, for people who have uh, mental problems. And it's terrific. They take, you know, if you qualify to go there, of course, if you can afford to pay for it, you, you pay for it. If you don't, you're there. They What they do is they'll give you free board and care, and uh, they'll if you have a pension, I'll take the pension, and Social Security, you know, give you a, uh, a you know, a salary, uh, not a salary, but just an allocation of monies each month to take care of. But it's terrific. They have, they have a television channel, Channel 22. There's a lot of very talented people that are there, and it's a oh, wonderful yeah. way of life. And this, uh, they do have what they call the Stark, uh, the Saban Center which is a terrific, they have a beautiful big swimming pool which is heated to 86, so for people that, that have arthritic, arthritic problems, they you know able to work there in classes. They have all sorts of classes, yoga classes and stuff. Now, in order to qualify to live there, you have to have a certain number of years uh, in the industry itself, whether yeah. it's your grip or electrician, craft service, an actor, special effects, assistant directors. So a lot, you know, it's a lot of very wonderful, famous people in their, their later years are there and they have a great life. You know, doing the series, it, 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 when, when I'm going through every movie that had a release, I, I'm, uh, it's not only a celebration of movies, good, bad, or brilliant. It's a celebration of the people that make them. And, and, and that's not limited to the actors or the directors thousands of people that we don't know of that right. that entertained us for years and years yeah. and years so it's great to hear that the industry has a place where it takes care of its own <laughs> <laughs> 